I think it's safe to say that 2020 wasn't the year that anyone expected. Anyone have global pandemic on their bingo card? This year has had a huge impact on everything from society to business to where we work and how we live. And it's led many to reevaluate the world around them and what's important in life. I myself have spent much of 2020, like many others, unexpectedly working from home, trying to figure out how to stay physically and mentally healthy. Whilst the world around me was rapidly and at many points unpredictably changing, and our organisations are no different. They have all had to adapt to this rapidly changing environment in order to survive and hopefully thrive in this <clears throat> new normal. Sorry. So how do they do it? Well, on this very special episode of Technology Untangled, I'm really excited to be joined by three senior business leaders. Edelman's EMEA president and CEO, Ed Williams, HPE's president and CEO, Antonio Neri, and Rocket Venturi Formula E team principal, Susie Wolf. I'm speaking to them about what happened in 2020, how they reacted, and what's next on the horizon for 2021. I'm Michael Bird, and this is 2020 Untangled. The long-term effects of 2020 are going to be felt for many years to come. And at the end of this year, it's impossible to quantify just how much society and our organisations have changed. I think it became clear to all of us pretty early on that communications would be critical. So with that in mind, I called up Edelman's Ed Williams to hear what 2020 looked like for them. My name's Ed Williams. I am the president and CEO of Edelman in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. I'm a former media executive at Reuters and at the BBC. I was a journalist many years ago before the internet. Edelman is the world's largest communications consultancy, which traditionally sees them advising clients, brands and institutions on a whole manner of things. And it was in January 2020 when Ed Williams first understood that a crisis of colossal proportions was on our hands. I was at the World Economic uh, Forum in Davos in January and there was a late kind of um, new meeting put in the diary that was available for people to go and talk to the or listen to the director of the Wellcome Trust uh, talk about the coronavirus. And this went in quite last minute. And I thought, well, I was sort of intrigued, as I say, as a former journalist. So I went along to listen uh, to the uh, director uh, and to the Wellcome Trust. Actually, they're one of our one of our clients. And it was a very small room and it was a very small audience. <laughs> And it was primarily uh, media from Southeast Asia. This was not a big room and this was not a big topic, but it was very clear uh, when you listen to um, the director of the Wellcome Trust, that this was a very big problem. Now, like every other organisation on the planet, Edelman faced the challenge of tackling a problem which, although we understood a pandemic threat in a conceptual sense, we had never really prepared for. I certainly, in my career, and I've been working for, you know, a quarter of a century now, in the crisis scenario planning sessions I've done, in the simulations I've done, a global pandemic has never come up. <laughs> There's been plenty of other business continuity issues, 
involving kind of terrorism or rogue members of staff or economic crises, but we've never actually simulated a pandemic the likes of which we've now experienced over the last eight months. biggest challenge first obviously was around logistics because if you think about you know our, our business is a talent business our business is all about people and the magic of our business actually is when those people come together it's the environment in which they do work together they collaborate and they create things it's the kind of collision of ideas the sort of serendipity of the office and so the bit the biggest challenge first of all was how do we respond to a virus, which means people need to work from home. So we're going from a dozen or so, you know, big offices around Europe, Middle East and Africa to 1,200 offices as our people scatter uh, to their homes uh, around the region. And so the business continuity piece of that is really significant. How do you keep the business in good shape? How do you keep confidence how do you create the environment in which people want to pull together, particularly when people are scared as well? How do you create a culture where people are kind? So the mindset piece was significant as much as the kind of logistics. So how did it feel to be steering the ship, especially at the beginning, through such a turbulent time? My whole career has been in and out of the news industry or one way or another, either reporting on news either as a news editor or as a consultant and an executive uh, on the inside of big news stories and in the decision-making side. Uh, And this was a huge story. I mean, this is a generational story. And so the journalist in me and the adrenaline that that came from participating in this really got me through. I mean, look, professionally, it was very challenging. And, you know, like many people, life, work isn't everything to me. I've got a wife, I've got a son who was eight, who was out of school and was trying to do remote, remote learning on um, platforms online. I've got my family, I've got my friends. So I had all of those pressures as well. But I was able to compartmentalise it. And particularly in, I would say, lockdown one, the adrenaline of it and essentially the fact that we're in a... Um, an extended crisis, I think really got me through personally. The most successful pandemic response strategies saw organisations acting decisively and rapidly with crystal clear communication. And Ed points to a few decisions that he made that were critical to him in those early months. The first was to immediately um, change our rhythm of business. So the way I was running our region, which is one of the largest regions in our in our network, I would be talking to my most senior colleagues once a week. I would be doing a, a longer conversation once a month. I moved from that to a situation where we were talking three times a day. And that would be myself, my COO, my um, CFO, and our head of people. That rhythm of speaking three times a day, we continued for the first three months such that nothing fell between the gap. Every issue was addressed and we were able to move really at pace. I also immediately set up a WhatsApp channel for all of the uh, market CEOs in Edelman. So the CEO in 
Africa in the Middle East, in France, in Germany, UK, Ireland, uh, in Brussels, in Amsterdam, in Spain, in Italy, and so on and so forth. You know, certainly in the first three months, it was a very effective way of uh, getting information out and getting very quick response on issues. Second thing, sort of in parallel, really, was to create a business continuity task force. And that business continuity task force was looking at how we could provide a framework and a standardized way of looking uh, into each market and op- offering the operational support that they needed so that we weren't, we didn't have a whole range of different ways of coping with this crisis so that all of our employees experienced Edelman in, in, in the same way. The third thing I did was I looked at our existing strategy, which was around integrating our business horizontally. And rather than pause, I said, we're going to accelerate that because in a world in which we don't have a dozen or so offices, we've got 1,200 offices, we can drive horizontal integration across time zones, across geographies, at real pace here in a way maybe it would have taken uh, longer to do uh, when we weren't working remotely. And that has been a tremendous success. And my colleagues, when you, when you talk to them about what's the kind of positive legacy of COVID, I think many of them would say that they know the business better than they've ever known it before. They know their colleagues better than they've ever known it before. And they're really excited about the work. And the fourth thing I would say, Michael, is in a crisis, there's no such thing as over-communication. So I, I decided very early on that we needed to massively increase the cadence of our employee engagement on our employee comms. So, you know, we immediately started a digital newsletter. Uh, we increased the frequency of our all-staff town halls. I created a Q&A session where a range of leaders would be online and, you know, staff could literally ask them anything. We were very open and very transparent about the financial situation so that no one was left in, in, in the dark. And... All of the data I've seen in terms of staff feedback suggests that that led to staff being highly engaged, reassured, motivated, and feeling like we were all pulling together. So that communications piece, that employee engagement strategy was absolutely vital. Is there anything that, or any practices that you have adopted since the beginning of March that you think will continue when everything gets back to normal, quote unquote. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think we're now going to be operating in a, in a kind of hybrid way. We've got five and a half thousand people working at Edelman. Everyone now has experienced the power of virtual working. Everyone has experienced the power of being able to convene across geographies, across time zones. So I think about my business you know, work that comes our way, problems that clients need to solve, involves a kind of pitch situation. Pre-COVID, we would do that in person. And people would fly around the world, and we'd arrive, and we'd spend three or four days in advance working up the the pitch. You obviously can't do that anymore. And there is a discipline now that comes with virtual working that requires much greater levels of production, much greater levels of clarity of thought of what your contribution is, 
and much, much better choreography of thinking and presence and the presentation of your ideas. And I think that absolutely is something that we will take forward. The other thing that comes from COVID that I think will be a legacy is the broader notion that we need to get on planes and fly around places. I mean, obviously, human contact is incredibly important um, when you are working so closely together on clients and in a business. And that, obviously, there is there is no alternative but to meet people in person. But will we see a reduction in business travel as a result of COVID? Definitely. And I don't think it's that's not purely based on a desire to manage the bottom line. We've recognised that the technology now can really enable close working with people uh, in, in other countries and in, in other time zones. But, you know, I am not an advocate and I don't believe this is fundamentally going to change the office environment in creative agencies, either management consultancies, you know, public affairs, uh, public relations, communications, uh, advertising agencies. The office is so fundamental to what we do and how we do our work that as soon as we can get back to that collaborative working I think we will do so the, the idea that you're going to simply straight line the experience of COVID in perpetuity I'm afraid I don't buy and also Michael the other thing I don't buy either is that this is the end of cities for the last 500 years the direction of history has been towards cities why? Because that is where power resides. Political power, economic power, business power. It's where jobs are. It's where careers are made. It's where people make their fortunes, if you're Dick Whittington. And that's not going to change. So to quote Bill Gates, I think we will overestimate the effects in the short term and probably slightly underestimate them in the long term. Thanks, Ed. I think a lot of organisations would echo Ed's sentiment about remote working. And while video conferencing can't replicate the chat around the coffee machine, some of the givens of the pre-COVID work environment, such as national and international travel for meetings, have been thrown into sharp perspective. Of course, COVID-19 isn't the first global pandemic in history. But it is the first that we have lived and experienced in this modern technological world. It's impossible to imagine what would have happened if some of the things that we take for granted, like the internet, smartphones, Wi-Fi and cloud computing, weren't around. Tech companies have played an important role in ensuring business continuity for organisations worldwide. So to hear what that looked like from the inside, I called up Antonio Neri, president and CEO of my employer, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So best behaviour, Michael. Hello. There you go. Hi, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Antonio. Antonio has been with Hewlett-Packard, now Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, since 1995 and has a unique understanding of the industry. Originally from Argentina, he started his career with a company in the customer service department in Amsterdam. During his 26 years at the company, he's been part of everything from research and development to global business strategy and positioning HPE as an innovative market leader. Antonio's overseen big changes at HP before. 
after the company split into Hewlett-Packard and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise in 2015. But despite his wealth of experience, just like for the rest of us, the pandemic came as a total surprise. I actually was traveling through Europe when I started getting all the uh, reports and news about the situation in China. And then we saw the first few cases elsewhere. And as I came back, obviously, the situation deteriorated quite rapidly. And then by the beginning of February, we we had a whole different uh, kind of process in place. So as a company, we quickly acted and uh, we established a framework that allow us to really engage customers, partners and employees through what we call assess, address and adapt, which is the process we use through the, the last nine months and continue to now focus on the adapt side of the house. And what about you as a person? How did you feel when that all happened? Well, obviously it was distressing. My first thought went to uh, the communities and our employees, how we keep them safe. And then in an arch of three weeks or so, we had to send everybody home and make them productive. So one aspect of that was the safety. The other one was how we kept them productive. And then as we went through this process, we learned a few things, right? You know, physical and mental health became essential. And we as an organization established programs in place. And there personally, obviously, you know, I had to take care of my family, but also at the same time, take care of myself. In June, unfortunately, I got contracted with COVID, which was a unique personal experience. Although I will say I was um, a lucky one because the, the symptoms were not as strong as many other people got. So what's been the biggest thing that you've learned in 2020? Yeah, that unfortunately we are not prepared for these type of situations. You know, one thing is the business side, which obviously had tremendous disruption to our supply chain. And it took us almost um, four months to recover from. Uh, And I'm super proud of what we have done as a company. But the reality is that while we had excellent crisis management processes in place, we were not prepared and resilient to deal with these type of situations. And that's something that obviously... Now we have incorporated in our, what we call enterprise risk management practices. And then the second part of that thought went to how we help the communities, because obviously the communities were significantly impacted. And um, whether it's to provide equipment or monetary aid, whatever was needed, we step up as an organization and also our employees themselves uh, step up to provide support and volunteering hours to help them as well. So I think we learned quite a bit. We are much better prepared now for the future, but uh, we are not out yet, right? So we're still waiting for the vaccine. The good news is we have received very positive news, and now it's all about planning, deploying the vaccine as quickly as possible. What was the most challenging thing this year, do you think, from a business perspective? We entered the year already with some challenges, right? So macroeconomic uncertainty, geopolitical tension, then the pandemic was added on top. And then we had to deal also with some natural disasters, hurricanes and wildfires and so forth that um, unfortunately was added on top of the, the crisis. But again, I am incredibly proud of how we react as a company, is the character of Hewlett Packard Enterprise, score to our purpose. But needless to say that the supply chain was the biggest challenge and then dealing with the cases across the world. And we had more than 500 cases in the company. And unfortunately, we had a handful of death as well that we had to deal with it. And that's very distressing. As a company, you always want to do the best you can, but it's never enough. 
in addition to that, obviously, we had a very challenging political year in the United States and social injustice that obviously we repudiated and we have taken actions ourselves in terms of inclusion and diversity. So do you think 2020 accelerated any changes that were going to happen anyway, whether within HPE or across the industry at large? Absolutely. I mean, 2020 is a year unlike any other. The changes we saw are permanent and lasting, in my view. A couple of years ago, I stated that the enterprise of the future will be edge-centric, cloud-enabled, and data-driven. Unfortunately, through the pandemic, those thoughts have been validated. Think about it, right? So we work now in a massive distributed enterprise where the homes are an extension of the um, architectures from edge to cloud, where the home is now a micro branch. And so the ability to connect all these endpoints in a secure way and provision services to the employees is going to be critical. So I think the workplace of the future has changed dramatically, has changed totally in my view. And the good news is that we have the digital capabilities and IT capabilities to be able to provide a whole new experience to everyone, whether it's employees and enterprises at large, or the opportunity we saw early on with the transformation of the edge. So for me, while on one end is a big challenge, on the other end is, I think, a great opportunity for a company to capitalize on the massive digital transformation and the amount of data we are generating. Because obviously data is the new currency. And if we can provide those insights to customers faster, they will be able to accelerate their own business objectives. So big opportunity, but obviously the key here is to uh, ensure we have resilient IT capabilities in place and obviously empower this new workforce. And what's on the horizon for HPE in 2021 and beyond? You know, uh, by nature, I'm an optimistic individual. I always look to the future with that optimism that we can change the world and we can change businesses. When I think about our portfolio, we have some phenomenal innovation already in the market and more coming. We have a clear vision to be the edge to cloud platform as a service company. We provide cloud-native, secure, seamless connectivity with our Aruba portfolio, which I think is winning big in the marketplace. We already have more than 65,000 customers and more than a million devices under that platform and growing. Uh, We are getting share. And then uh, our strategy there is to incorporate edge computing and 5G, which is requirements that customers are asking us. So I'm very bullish about that business. And with the acquisition of Silverpeak, It completes the entire portfolio and experience. And then on the core business, the pivot to a consumption-driven model is accelerating. Customers want to preserve liquidity and want to have one consistent consumption experience. And GreenLake is a flagship product, clearly has a tremendous momentum in the marketplace with the growth rate that we have experienced in the last few quarters. But it's all about delivering an experience that's uh, differentiated for those workloads that stay on-prem and yet provide that to, true hybrid operating model that customers are looking for. And then, you know, we have our software portfolio with HPS model, which really is delivering tremendous performance, particularly in data-intensive workloads. And last but not least, we talk about AI and machine learning, and HPC is the backbone for that business, and we have tremendous momentum. I mean, I'm so pleased and enthusiastic about the business 
And as you know, we have won many of the large exascale businesses that were on the table, opportunities, and we are now on a journey to build and deliver those systems, which not only will improve the U.S. as a force of innovation, but also to accelerate research in many areas. Antonio, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Well, thank you very much for having me today. Antonio Neri there, CEO and President of HPE. Antonio spoke with positivity and confidence about the ability to provide customers with what they're looking for. The reality being, of course, that our individual and business tech needs have changed dramatically over the past year. There's a well-supported theory that says that innovation thrives during difficult times. So tech companies are in a unique position to provide that backbone of support during 2020, but also to shape what the future looks like when the world returns to normal. Or something like normal. For large tech organisations like HPE and communications organisations like Edelman, a major logistical challenge was to create some semblance of business as usual, whilst overseeing huge international workforces working from home. For other industries that rely heavily on physical in-person events, say for example Formula E racing, the pandemic threatened business continuity in a really tangible way. To find out more, I called up Susie Wolfe. My name is Susie Wolf, and I am the team principal of the Rocket Venturi Formula E racing team. Susie is one of the biggest names in racing worldwide. She's been a champion for women in sports at every level and a powerful testimonial to encourage the growing global enthusiasm for Formula E racing. The Formula E race season began as usual in October 2019 and was due to continue right through to summer 2020. That is, until COVID-19 appeared slap bang in the middle of it. Like everywhere else, big changes were instant. The E-Prix races due to take place all over the world were cancelled in New York City, Paris, Rome, Sanya, London, Jakarta and Seoul. As team principal, Susie's first thought was her dispersed global workforce. The initial response was for the safety of the team. Of course, there was huge disappointment when you start to hear races being cancelled and that has a big knock-on effect because we had a lot of organisation of partners attending, of events planned, obviously the preparation and build-up to the race locations. So from that perspective, it took a lot of change internally to manage with the situation. But my my first focus was on, on the safety of the team. And that meant because we have different team members in different locations throughout Europe, making sure that everybody was safe, was with their families, there was nobody at risk. And certainly when we started to get a bit more visibility as to what COVID was and what the implications were, we then as an organisation had to adapt to the new set of rules in terms of how to go racing and how to carry on with our business. And that was also very challenging because we had big plans around obviously going racing and suddenly being told racing stopping and having no visibility as to when it was restarting was was certainly difficult. Because I guess unlike the F1 season, you were midway through the 2019-2020 season? We were, which was a big benefit. We'd had half the races done. We knew how many races we had to do to complete a season. 
there were certainly a lot of discussions with Formula E management and the FIA. How do we finish the season with putting people at the least amount of risk, but obviously finishing on a high and making sure that we were providing the best spectacle possible for our partners and for the brands that we that we work with and represent. And it showed you the power of the collective because obviously we needed to find that very fine balance with safety first, making sure that everyone that arrived to put on the last races was tested in the correct way, was being looked after within the bubble. We were obviously having to comply to quite strict health guidelines in the country we were racing. We ended up finishing the season with nine races in six days, something which I've never experienced in my 25 years of motorsport. And that as a team was something which we very much had to prepare for and something which I don't think we'll ever experience again, thankfully, because it was a huge challenge. But in the end, we we managed it and everybody was in the same boat. And it's incredible that when such a situation like a pandemic hits, it's that collective effort um, which in the end is required to overcome it. So what has surprised you most about your team and the way that they've been able to react and adapt to 2020 or during 2020? I think the first and foremost part is the fact that we, being based in different locations throughout Europe, but having our headquarters in Monaco, we very quickly were able to adapt by not being able to travel. We all downloaded the apps that we needed to, to in order to do video conferencing. And that's some, something which certainly shocked me initially, how efficient it is. Um, of course, you can't beat the human element and standing around the coffee machine and, and talking about the, the latest session in the simulator because out of that conversation comes more than would come out of a video call. But it still allowed us to feel connected as a team. There were some video calls when I did my team talks with 30 people on the line. And it's still that technology allowed us to be connected. It showed me also, from my perspective, not being Monaco-based, I don't need to take a, take a two-hour flight every week to Monaco. I don't need to jump in my car to drive to Heathrow Airport. And so it also showed me a, a way of living which is more sustainable because I don't need to travel as much as I normally would have in the past. And I think that's something I'll most certainly carry forward. And finding the balance is clear. You need the human element of the team being together. But I do think as a team, we've seen that there's more efficient ways of working and doing what we do. And that's something that I want to carry forward and make sure that even when the pandemic is over, that we are always looking at efficiency. We're making sure that we're making the best use of our time and making sure that we are up to date with technology, which is so quickly evolving, but making sure that we are on the cutting edge. What's been the biggest thing that you've learned from 2020 as a team principal? As a team principal, but also as a wife and mother, live in the moment. You know, it's always great to plan ahead. It's always great to be organized. And certainly in a situation where I'm a team principal of a team, it's very much about forward planning and knowing what our goals are, where we want to get to. But it's also about realizing, okay, this is the present situation. Yes, we can think there's a race happening in six weeks. If it gets canceled, we're going to have to cope with the situation. Um, And that adaptability is something I've certainly become much more accustomed to because I was someone that liked to be very, very organized to an extent where I'm a little bit OCD. And that control was taken away from me um, on the professional side and on the personal side, where in the end, I was at the mercy of, of what the governments were telling us was the correct thing to do. But that also forced me to then live much more in the moment, not always thinking of what's coming, but actually enjoy what's happening right now. Be part of the journey 
instead of always focusing on the end result. So on a personal level then, how has 2020 been for you? 2020 has been challenging and I'm using that word challenging a lot, but I think it really sums it up. There's certainly been some, been some big positives from 2020. I've never seen my husband so much, which could be seen as a positive or negative, but thankfully our marriage is in a good place. So it's very much a positive. And it's also allowed us to reevaluate more um, our lifestyle and what our priorities are. And certainly that quality time as a family was something that we've grown accustomed to now and something that we don't want to give up completely when the world returns to normal. The biggest challenge was simply managing the team through a very difficult time. And when I say managing the team, we're not a huge organization and I have huge respect for people who have to to manage huge organizations with with thousands of workforce because that's a a huge responsibility to shoulder. And even in our small organization here at Venturi, I felt a real responsibility to somehow make sure that we would survive economically. And obviously that uncertainty which hit us all in, in the midst of the lockdown and the visibility of knowing if it was ever going to to return, particularly in that season, more than thinking too far ahead of the future. But I think that was the biggest challenge, just managing the team and, and making sure that obviously they felt that as much as we, everything was out of our control, there was someone at at the helm of the ship that was was making sure that we were going to survive no matter what. So then on the flip side then, what do you think has been your biggest success this year? My biggest success was being able to put my work-life balance much more into perspective. I'm someone that I, I love what I do. I'm very passionate about what I do. So I don't see it as a job. It's something I, I take huge enjoyment from. But it also allowed me to reevaluate how I do my job, how I can be more efficient in my job, which in turn can make me or like give me the, the time to be a better wife and mother. Um, and certainly the time that we had as a family is something which I realize is so precious. It's not something you can buy. It's not a goal that you aim for. It's simply being in the moment and enjoying being with the people you love. And it sounds so cliche, but the, the best things in life are the ones that don't cost anything. What do you think your top predictions for 2021 for the team, for Formula E as a sport, and I guess maybe motorsport as a whole? I think there's a lot of positivity in the air now. Um, people are not as fearful as they used to be. They see the light at the end of the horizon. I certainly feel a lot of momentum from all of our partners who are saying, okay, let's get going. What's the plans for 2021? So I think 2021 will be a normal race season, touch wood. That's what we're all hoping for. And there's certainly a huge commitment from the Formula E management to pull it off as a normal season. And we as a team have a very clear target. We want to get into the top eight in the team championship. If we can get into the top six, we have over-delivered and I love over-delivering. So we have very clear targets and I'm super, super excited to think of 2021. I'm very much looking forward to celebrating New Year because that means that 2020 is behind us. We can look back and say, my goodness, what a year. Um, but we can look forward with so much positivity. I don't know if you, um, you know, at New Year's kind of reflect on what you think is going to be happening the year ahead. And I certainly wasn't predicting this for 2020. So knowing what we know now, what changes are you going to make in 2021 for Venturi Formula E team? We've already made quite a few big changes. We have a new driver lineup. Uh, Norman Nato has replaced uh, Felipe Massa. 
we have internally done quite a few changes uh, to optimize the performance of the team. And I think moving forward, it's about just focusing on our efficiency and adaptability as a team. There may be curveballs that are still coming. Uh, we've got to make sure that we are going to cope with those in the best way possible. But I think we all feel quite refreshed from the fact that we had quite a break from racing. I think it also made us realize that we love what we do. We had months of not racing. We had months of not being able to be as a team on the road together. And I think it also made us realize that, hey, we are so lucky to be doing what we do, a job that we love, and, and let's get back to it, rock and roll. Thanks, Susie. Challenge and adaptability are words that came up pretty frequently when I spoke to all of the leaders for today's episode. For many organisations, 2020 has meant making some incredibly difficult business decisions. And as the ensuing economic fallout continues into next year, no doubt there are more challenges around the corner. But the overriding message from Ed Williams, Antonio Neri and Susie Wolf is one of hope. The world of work has changed, and some of that might be permanent, even if we're not willing to get rid of the office just yet. But the individual changes have perhaps been even more profound. We're all seeing our positions in society a little differently. We're appreciating our colleagues, our loved ones, the people that have guided us through this year, and just the little things in the world around us. Who knows what 2021 will bring? But that is a pretty powerful way to see in the new year. You've been listening to Technology Untangled and I'm your host, Michael Bird. A huge thanks to Ed Williams, Antonio Neri and Susie Wolf for taking the time to talk to us. And you can find more information from today's episode in the show notes. This episode marks the last in the current series of Technology Untangled, but be sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app and keep an eye out for the brand new season of Technology Untangled in the new year. Today's episode was written and produced by Isabel Pollard and me, Michael Bird, with sound design and editing by Alex Bennett and production support from Harry Morton and Alex Podmore. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett Packard Enterprise in the UK and Ireland. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.